Good morning. Today's reading is from James 4, 1 through 12. Uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts, our ears, our minds will be open to receive your word and to understand. Amen. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires and battles within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What do you think the scripture says without reason? That the spirit he caused to live within us envies intensely, but he gives us grace all the more. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Russ. I didn't mean to assign you all the finger-wagging. Sorry. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're marching through the New Testament book of James, which is a letter written by a man named James. We believe it was Jesus' brother. And he writes this to early Christians to answer the question, what does it look like to grow into a more mature faith? So what does it look like not just to get the basics, the essentials of the Christian faith, but what does it look like to grow into a, a more robust, more mature faith. To use the image of, um, of growing up and of children, what does it look like? You know, we've got a um, one-year-old, and she's learning to eat solid food. So what does it look like instead of going from spiritual milk to start eating spiritual, in her case, raisins and goldfish and whatever else? And then eventually she'll start eating more and more and more adult food. What does spiritual maturity look like? That's what James is wrestling with, and that's what we're considering in this series. Now, last week, we spent some time in what I said was probably the most important section of the whole book of James. Most important in the sense that that really distills the point 
of what James is trying to get across. And the big idea is this, that true wisdom, one, doesn't come from inside of us and it doesn't come from the world around us, it comes from God. And two, true wisdom generates humility. True wisdom is not proud, it doesn't boast, but it is humble. It is humble. So case in point, think of somebody right now, right now, think of somebody in your life whom you consider to be wise. Think of them. Picture them in your mind. Who is wise? You got someone? Would you describe that person as proud or as humble? My hunch is that every single one of us, when we think of somebody who is wise, we've thought of somebody who is also humble. You see, like, we, we even know this. Somehow baked into us is the understanding that wisdom and humility go hand in hand. That's not really controversial, right? I mean, if we think about it for more than a a, a few seconds, we understand humility and wisdom seem to be interwoven. It's almost like if wisdom is a red thread and humility is a blue thread, all we see is a purple piece of fabric. They're that tightly woven together. And at that level, so most of us probably agree. Then we start looking at the world around us, and it seems that humility is in rather short supply. And we start wondering, wait a minute, what is going on here? What is going on here? So often, it seems that we think of humility as a sign of weakness, not of strength, as something to be avoided, not something to be pursued. So this morning, we're asking, what is the soil out of which the faithful, wise, even humble Christian life grows? How do we, how do we press toward the humility and the wisdom that God calls us to? And James is going to answer this in a couple of different ways. He's going to give us two things to avoid and one thing to pursue. Two voices to be skeptical of and one voice to listen very closely to, if that makes sense. James tells us, be very skeptical, one, of what the voices inside you are saying. Be very skeptical of what the voices inside you of your heart, of your inner kind of being tells you. Secondly, he'll say, be very skeptical of what the world around you tells you. And thirdly, he'll say, pay very close attention. Listen very carefully to what you hear God telling you. That's kind of the obvious third, third point, right? Be skeptical of what your heart tells you. Be skeptical of what the world tells you. But listen very closely to what God tells you through his word. So let's look at those. What, how do we pursue, how do we cultivate healthy soil out of which true wisdom and true humility In other words, the mature Christian life can grow. James answers this right from the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And is it fair to say that fights and quarrels are probably a sign of a lack of wisdom and humility? And then he answers the question for us. He says, they come from your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. In a sense, what he's doing is expanding on what he talked about just last week, which was um, in chapter 3. He says uh, twice in chapter 3, he points out really two key things that we, we hope we would want to avoid, namely selfish ambition and envy. Here's how he puts it. This is reaching back to last week. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth, such wisdom, and he uses the word wisdom kind of in air quotes there, 
He's being sarcastic. Such wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's of the devil. Now, this is a little bit, this is very unconventional, uh, namely because what is James doing? He's saying, out of your heart grow bitter envy and selfish ambition. But in, in the modern Western world, what do we hear all the time? Well, listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Pay attention to your heart. What is your heart telling you? You should do that. How often do you hear people say something like that? Just listen. Go with your heart. That is, um, from a Christian perspective, that is dangerous advice. Now, I have to say at the outset, um, James doesn't tell us to completely ignore our heart, and he doesn't tell us to completely ignore the world. And to the extent that we grow closer and closer to Christ, like he says in this text, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, God will transform our hearts and we can trust them more. But we always ought to be questioning and asking. That's why I say be skeptical. Don't just accept everything wholesale. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah puts it about the heart. He says the heart, and the Hebrew understanding of the heart is the core being of who you are. The heart is deceitful above all things more than anything else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful, he says. Now that's a strong, that's a strong word. <laughs> that's a strong, maybe you're probably thinking, I hope you're kind of thinking like, I don't, I don't think my heart is deceitful, Right? Surely I'm not deceitful, right? Let me ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever misjudged somebody's motives? You got a text from somebody or you got an email from somebody and it happens more frequently now because of written communication and you can't read tone. You ever got an email from somebody and your heart told you, man, that person really has it in for me. And you completely misjudge their motives. And has it ever happened that you thought they really had it in for you, and then afterwards you realize, maybe after a couple more conversations, wow, I completely misunderstood that person. Or, have you ever felt just at the core of your being, like everything in you said, I really, I need blank. However you fill in that blank. And that could, you could fill that in, any, you could fill it in with, with an object, with a, like something material. Um, I think more likely we fill it in with immaterial things or with, with non, maybe, maybe it's a, per, I need that per, a relationship with so-and-so. I need my life to go a certain way. I need my family to look this way or that way. Maybe it was something more abstract even. Maybe it's like I need um, control or I need a good reputation. I need people to think well of me, to have a good reputation among my, my social. So you see, like, there's so many things that our hearts just feel like they need and they crave. And here's the thing about all those things, right? Once you get it, is it ever enough? Is it ever? No, of course not. It's never enough. I need, I desperately need to get married. And then you get married and realize your spouse actually isn't perfect. And they let you down, and they disappoint you. And now you've been putting all of these unfair expectations on, on somebody else and asking them to be something they could never be to begin with. Why? Because your heart deceived you. Your heart thought, if I just have that thing, that'll be enough. And, it, and you got it, and it wasn't enough. I need control. And then you get it. And then you just want more. 
It's never enough, you see? The heart is deceitful above all things. That's a strong word, I know. And yet, if we really start to think about it, we realize it's true. Now, thinking about the word deceit, just a little more, by the way. Um, here's the thing about deceit. There are elements of truth in deceit. A good deceit, a good deception is not this bold-faced lie that has no... No, it's actually just true enough that you can kind of suspend disbelief. You tell a half-truth, and then you can steer the conversation in the direction you want it to go. So here's the difference. Like, a good deceit. Here's a bad deceit. Bad as an ineffective. All deceit is morally bad. We're not, but um, an ineffective deceit uh, would be if, you're, if your heart tells you you should underreport your income for your taxes. And you would say, well, of course, that's wrong. That's morally wrong. I'm not going to do that. A good deceit, again, not morally good, but an effective deceit. You know how your heart convinces you to underreport your income on your taxes? Say you, some cash income or something that they'll never know. You know what you're, here's, here's how it goes. You had a hard, it's been a hard year financially. And you, man, this would really help. And you've supported some good charities. And so you've done some good civic, you've done some civic good. And, and you're such, like, let's face it, it's just little old humble me. I'm such small potatoes. And the government will never, they'll never know. And they'll never notice. And they'll never miss the, you know, the little amount of money that I should be reporting. They'll never miss it. They'll never notice. Just this one year. And it'll just be one year. Just be, and, and you know what? If something, I can just, I forgot. It was, you know, how easy is it to just forget to report something? And it won't hurt anybody. And besides, by, by helping uh, kind of getting myself more stable this year, then I'll put myself in a better position to help more next year. Yeah, you see, every one, you know what? Every one of those little things is true. Every one of those, the IRS will never miss, you know, whatever 200 extra dollars that you would be paying in taxes and whatever, whatever, whatever. Every one of those statements is true. See, our heart uses these small half-truths to lead us into deceit. And we don't even realize it's happening. The desires in us, in our heart, so easily and effectively lead us astray. Now, James is not saying that your heart is totally bankrupt. Okay, so don't hear me say that. That's not what James, he's not saying there's no good inside of you. Okay, we're all, we also know we're all made in God's image and he gives grace. We call it common grace to each and every person. Methodists sometimes call it provenient grace as well if you're Methodist background. So James isn't saying don't trust any of your heart, but he is saying be careful. Be wary. He's not saying don't trust any of it, but he is saying don't trust it all. Don't trust it wholesale. Ask questions. One really effective strategy might be to invite other people to ask questions. Do you have people that you can invite into your life to ask you hard questions? Wise people, humble people, to ask some hard questions. Be very wary of your heart and what your heart tells you, James says. C.S. Lewis, just one last point about that. C.S. Lewis pointed out, if you've read Mere Christianity, which he published in something like the 1950s, that's a 70-year-old book now, but he points out that if each of us just follows our own heart, then what happens when our hearts con contradict each other? What if my heart tells me to do something that your heart says is not very good? 
You see, so even, even if, if you just set aside the whole spiritual component of it, just the very logical and practical side of it, if, if you have deeply angered me, and my inclination, this is the, the image I'm recalling from memory, but I think this is the image that C.S. Lewis uses. He says, if you've deeply angered me and I need justice, and the way for me to get just uh, justice is to strike you in the face, like my heart says, that's right, but your heart would say, well, that's wrong. What do you do then? So it's not just, I mean, there are just clear, non-spiritual, logical problems with that argument as well. Be skeptical. Be careful with your heart. Examine it closely, James says. That's number one. Number two, be very skeptical. How do we grow into wisdom and humility? Be skeptical of what your heart tells you. Number two, be skeptical of what the world around you tells you. This is verse four. Look at what he says in verse four. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Another strong word. James, James doesn't hold back punches. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, he writes, becomes an enemy of God. Becomes an enemy of God. Now, first, let's point out that uh, ancient cultures use the word friendship in a stronger way than we tend to use it. So, so when he says friendship, he's not talking about a casual acquaintance or a Facebook friend or somebody who you kind of know their name, but you've never really met them. Uh, friendship was deep. It was, think of, of, of almost like a best friend or a blood brother. I mean, friendship really meant something meaty. And when he talks about the world, we should probably define that a little bit. Like, what does James mean by the world? Because there are actually Christians who over-apply this idea, and they withdraw completely from the life around them. And they create, a lot of times it results in them creating their own everything. And so, so they end up with this withdrawn, you know, so-called, like, Christian this and Christian that, and, and they become basically hermits, and almost monastic in their disengagement. That's not what James has in mind. One, it can't be, because think of Jesus, and we believe this is James, Jesus' brother. One of the chief complaints that Jesus' opponents leveled against him was what? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of sinners. So James can't mean have nothing to do with the world. What does he mean when he writes, friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Well, again, remember that friendship, the way he's using friendship here, is a very, very, very strong, close alignment with somebody else. So he's not saying have nothing to do with the world, but he is saying don't buy into it wholesale. Be skeptical. Be skeptical. Skeptical of what? Let's define the world a little bit. When he talks about the world, it's probably most helpful to go back to what he was talking about before. It's envy and selfish ambition in chapter 3. And remember, he's contrasting those things with the spirit of humility. Last week, remember what he said? That he talked about the humility that comes from wisdom. That true wisdom is not envious or not selfishly ambitious, but it's humble. Let's think about, and we could go so many directions with this. And I really kind of wrestled and, and I just, you know, okay, let's just, let's just do one. One example. So let's just pick one easy, gentle example where we can apply this, and um, I would say let's choose politics, because that's easy and that's gentle, right? In the mid-1900s, uh, there's a report some, sometime around the 50s or 60s, uh, there was a survey done of parents, and they found, they asked parents, uh, which would make you more upset, 
if your child married somebody of a different religion or of the different political party? That's a good question, isn't it? Now, in the 1950s and 60s, an overwhelming majority of people said, I would be more upset if my child married someone of a different religion than of a, of a different political party. Wouldn't you know, researchers have resurrected that study and asked that question again in the, in the early, what were we, early 2000s. And wouldn't you know, the results have switched. So now, an overwhelming majority of parents have said they would be more upset if their child marries someone of a different political party than of a different religion. It's not a stretch, is it, to say, and, and we, can, we can criticize all of them, but I would invite you to realize this is probably all of us to some degree. We have made politics our religion. And one of the upshots of that shift is that we tend to adopt a political mindset which in today's political environment, you might call win at all costs. Win at all costs. So we'll say things, we'll hear things, and then we'll subtly agree with them, even if, okay, we might not never ever say these things out loud, but we go along with them often. I don't necessarily agree with how so-and-so carries himself or carries herself, but I like that they get things done. I like that they speak truth to power. I like that they stand up for the little guy. I like that they're a fighter. I wonder, by the way, how Jesus would respond to that sentiment. We might say things like or hear things like, it's more important to keep the Democrats out of office or it's more important to keep the Republicans out of office than it is to elect candidates who are wise and civil and measured in their approach. And if you don't think that's a reality, look at how polarizing the candidates tend to be. And so we'll say things like, or we'll think things like, or we'll hear people say things like, you know, I'll gladly elect a, elect a fighter. I'll vote for a fighter. They don't have to, I don't need them to, to exhibit humility or wisdom. I will gladly vote for somebody who says incredibly destructive things because they're fighting for me. To those of us who are willing to get in bed with that kind of thinking, what does James say? He says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is, this is me paraphrasing James, there is really nothing Christian or Christ-like about a win-at-all-costs mentality. Why do I say that? Because what did Jesus do? How did Jesus hold it and lord it over his enemies at the cross? He didn't take a win-at-all-cost mentality, did he? James says, be very, very wary and skeptical of what you hear your heart telling you. Be very, very wary and skeptical of what you hear the world around you telling you. So who do we listen to? Trick question, duh, it's God. Here's how he puts it in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And then he starts to get even more pointed, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this in just a minute. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. These are those rapid fire, very short, very harsh sounding commands. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he saying there? You know how sometimes if somebody is headed in a certain direction, imagine a child maybe. If a child is going somewhere and they become pretty single-minded and they put on the blinders and they put on their earmuffs and so they don't hear anything around them or see anything but what they want, imagine they're headed towards something very destructive. And you say, sweetie, slow down, but they don't hear you. And you get a little louder, sweetie, slow down, and they don't hear you. What do you have to do? You have to speak very loudly, very sharply, and very abruptly just to get their attention. Consider that maybe that's the approach that James is taking here. And remember the context. He's pointing out our, our tendency to trust what comes from in here and trust what comes from outside of us. What do we do when we recognize? So when we start really taking an honest inventory of our heart and an honest inventory of the voices outside that we're letting in, when we've been prey, in a sense, to envy and selfish ambition, what do we do? Our hearts would tell us, well, one of several things, right? They would say, well, just do better next time. Don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. Or maybe something like, don't, don't even worry about it. You're just being true to yourself. Shrug it off. Laugh it off. The reality is that God says of our sin, this will kill you. And he doesn't say it because he's angry and he just wants to crush you. He says it because he wants to see you flourish. And just like a parent who sees their kid running towards a busy street and says, stop. God sees us running towards a busy street and says, stop. Stop. This is for your good. This is for your life. So wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Grieve, mourn, wail. In other words, confront your sin head on. Now, Chris, that's depressing. Why you got to be such a downer? Come on. Can't you inspire me? Aren't you taking all of this a little bit too seriously? The key that ties all of this together is verse 6. If you have your Bible or if you have your bulletin, look, look at this. Just say, again, I don't think you think I'm making it up, but we just, the more reinforcement, the better. How does he start in verse 6? But he gives more grace. He gives more grace, which is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's he saying? If you know Christ, if you know the, the real Jesus Christ, not, not who your heart kind of whimsically wants him to be, and not who the world around you tells you, well, Jesus must be like this or that because I heard about it or saw, saw about it or I read a blog post about it. No, but if you know Jesus Christ as he actually reveals himself to you in his word, you know you know that the deeper your sin, the deeper the grace of Christ. The deeper your sin, the deeper the grace of Christ, and the deeper the grace of Christ, the deeper you'll love him. 
If you don't know the grace of Christ, if you don't know Jesus as incredible, like, I don't even know the words for it, as having more grace than we can comprehend, if, in other words, if you think there's a limit to the grace of Jesus, then you would never confront your sin. Because what if, what if it gets to be too much? What if it gets to be too much? But if you realize that the grace of Christ is like the ocean and your sin is like a shell, a seashell, you realize that, that it can, you can never exhaust the grace of Christ. It just keeps washing over and it keeps washing over. And if you really believe the grace of Christ, then you're not afraid to take all of your sin to him because you know he gives more grace. He gives more grace. More, more, more. The reason we don't come to Christ is because we don't actually believe that he gives more grace. Do you want to grow in Christian maturity? Do you want to grow in love for Jesus? In wisdom and in humility? You cannot grow without recognizing sin. You can't do it. But in fact, James says, do something very counterintuitive, something your heart doesn't want to do and something the world would never tell you to do, which is to go deep into your sin. Because the deeper you go into your sin, the deeper you go into the grace of Christ. He gives more grace. You see? More grace. That's why James can say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The more we humble ourselves, the more we admit our need, the more he will lift us up. That's the gospel. We trust him. We trust him. Let me close with this. We told, James told us earlier, be skeptical, be wary, kind of distrust everything your heart tells you. Here's the good news. In Ezekiel 36, God promises us. He makes a similar promise uh, especially in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 31. So this is all over the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament with that mean, vindictive God? Listen to what the mean, vindictive God says in the Old Testament of all places. He promises, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, our hearts, if our hearts are sick and diseased, God says, you know, instead of living with your sick and diseased heart, how about, a, how about a new one? How about a heart transplant? How about a heart transplant? And here's the thing about a heart transplant. Um, to my knowledge, nobody has ever performed a heart transplant on themselves. You can't do it yourself. You cannot give yourself a new heart. You cannot do it literally and physically. You cannot do it spiritually. You need a skilled surgeon who knows exactly what she's doing to give you a new heart. We need a physician. We need a great physician to give us a new heart. The good news, brothers and sisters, is he has. He's given us his. And he gives more grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give more grace. That no matter how deep it goes, and the, and the deeper we explore the depths of our heart, the, the more unnerving it gets, the more it hurts sometimes, the more unsettling 
the more humbled we are, the more humiliated we are sometimes. We thank you that you give more grace. Give us more grace. Give us the courage, the wisdom, and the grace to grow deeper and deeper in our love for you as we mine the depths of your love for us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.